Hello, creeps. I'll be your ghost. I mean host. As we delve the crypts of spooky movies and even spookier theory. Welcome to Horror Vanguard. Uh, Beautiful. Do you want to lead us? Do you want to lead us in, my friend? Yeah, yeah. I'd I'd love I'd 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 love to to lead us into this episode. Uh, uh, you you know how I do. Um, it's been a rough day at the bike scene. Uh, I got cut from the team, but you know there's no iron team, and that really is the great romance of the 20th century. Um, today we'll be talking about Ghost Man on Third, uh, maybe the attack <laughs> of the Timberwolves at New Jersey. Um, my favorite movies all appear on Blue Channel. Uh, yeah, and I, I just really hope that this year Horror Vanguard won't be so last summer, um, and we're going to be the head of the club, the podcaster club. I really think that's how it's, this year is going to work out for us. <laughs> that was that was honestly honestly that was impressive, and I know there are some there are some people who were just forcibly yanked back to 2007 when you said all of that, and I was one of them. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, that was that was apropos of a conversation that uh, happened before we hit the record button, dear listeners. So uh, now you're you're here with us in Space Hell, uh, Space Hell, where the only band you can listen to is Taking Back Sunday, which would probably uh, actually not be Space Hell. No, that would I, be I should... be pretty good. <laughs> Hello, everybody. It's 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 your Horror Vanguard bonus episode for the month. Uh, thank you so much for supporting the show. Uh, we are in it. We're gonna have a great time. We're gonna have a great time today because we are talking about. Uh, we're talking about uh, the prodigy. We're talking about taking back Sunday. This is now a music. <laughs> this is now a music podcast. Uh, but to to get there, we have to very circuitously talk about um, talk about the king. Talk about the king of HV, baby. Um, we tried. We thought we were done. We thought we had gotten away from. Paul W.S. Anderson, but no, we are back. We are back <laughs> with a vengeance. We are talking about Event Horizon. And if you have not seen Event Horizon, I am so excited to to, to, to get... To, uh, I'm so excited to get to share with you what Event Horizon is about. So if you are listening, please put on your uh, military spacesuits pledge allegiance to <laughs> Jeff Bezos and the Space Miners and listen as our dear friend and co-ghost of the show Ash tells me you and everybody else listening what Event Horizon is all about You can't really say that Event Horizon is just a Hellraiser ripoff and that's because it's actually a ripoff of Hellraiser Bloodlines the Hellraiser literally set in outer space that came out the year before this movie did but, and dear listeners, you know this already, neither of us are here to waste your time by just calling this film a copy of a copy and move on. But that replication is where we should begin. Event Horizon is a copy of a copy of a copy. It Xeroxed Hellraiser Bloodlines, which, in turn, Xeroxed the original Hellraiser. Each copy having its own distortions and its own wavelengths. If you tilt your perspective just a little, everything in this world becomes acoustic. Gravity, light, even mass come as waves in a media. So why not emotion? Dr. Weir is acoustically reflective in terms of the waves of his emotions. Despite his feigned stoic exterior, his internal landscape is rocked by a turbulent emotional sea, even before he's exposed to the event horizon's cursed engine. Miller, by contrast, is a much firmer person. Emotions slowly reverberate through him, passing with a steady hand that a ship's captain needs. What makes Miller the better of the two is not his masculine steadiness, but his honesty. Miller is open to the acoustics of emotion, the waves they send through us, while Weir kicks and drowns in a sea of his own making. We see this most clearly when Miller opens up about his trauma, his pain. Captain Miller asked one of his crew, have you ever seen fire in zero gravity? It's beautiful. It's like a liquid. It slides all over everything and comes up in waves. Miller is discussing the first time he lost a crewmate, his greatest failure, the moment that haunts him to this very day. It's pain and it's beauty. Our pain creates resonances within us. We become drawn to our hurt like echoes through a cathedral. 
We reflect, distort, and dampen the acoustics of pain, but we never really escape their waves. Escape is a fantasy chased by Weir directly into hell itself, while Miller seeks to sail with these waves, inescapable as they are. This emotional acoustical architecture is not without demonstration. In their 2023 paper for the Journal of the Acoustical Society of America, Acoustic and Structural Differences Between Musically Portrayed Subtypes of Fear, Trevor, Renner, and Fruholtz write, the results support the hypothesis that music conveys terror and anxiety with markedly different musical structures and acoustic features. That great resounding din has its darker manifestations. Each act, whether it be one of fear, pain, or healing, creates a chorus that erupts into the social fabric around us. Try as we might to not be perceived, we give off an immense amount of psychic noise. It is incumbent upon us to be intentional with these compositions. Reverberate with us as we discuss Event Horizon. Greetings, my friend. We are all interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. Hello, hello, hello. hello. Hey, are you there? Hello. Hello. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> Hello. Can you hear me? Oh, yes, you're back. Uh, space magnets, man. It's the space magnets. Wh- where you cut off was amazing because it was like, join us as we discuss. And then the line just went dead. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I guess that's the perfect part for me to get cut off, then, um, isn't it? Yeah, that was great. That was so much fun. Uh, those da- Those damn space magnets... I just had to uh, pause my pause my audio while we were sorting all that. Why? What is with these outer space episodes and us being like just just cosmically attacked? You know, well, like we just I, can't record something on space without the the signal being collapsed. It, it could be worse. Remember the cursed episode? Hmm. Uh, I, I, I do. The cursed, <laughs> cursed episode. Oh my god! Event Horizon is both an episode about a cursed ship and an episode set in outer space. It is truly the hardest thing we have to record on (laughs) well let us let us try and get through this let us try and get through this in one piece without carving out our own eyes um (laughs) let us talk let us enter the formalism zone the formalism zone and again we're back, baby. We are back talking. <laughs> Paul W.S. I was so I was so happy when I saw mm-hmm. his name come up in the credits. You know, I feel like I feel like given all of the modern uh, contemporary iterations of Resident Evil media. Honestly, I have nothing but pleasant memories about watching every Paul W.S. Anderson Resident Evil film. Um, I had a great time doing those, and I'm so glad that we're doing this again. It's you know the, those Resident Evil movies have their technical limitations for sure, but I can't say that I didn't have a wonderful time talking about each and every one of them. Right? You're so right. Paul W. S. Anderson is a mark of quality. That I I would I would put I would put him up there with with like Roger Corman. You know, like the movies are going to be a little clunky, but like oh, you just know it's going to be enjoyable. I mean, and this we got a, It's a tight ninety. It's it's great, um, and it's like <laughs> I, I think I think we have to draw up. Let we we have established that there is the HV kind of like the shit list. Uh, you know, it's Darren. It's all the Darrens. All the Darrens are on the HV yeah. nemesis list. I think Paul W S Anderson is on whatever the opposite of that is, along with like Hersch- <laughs> along with like Roger Corman and yep. Herschel Gordon Lewis, definitely. <laughs> You know, we have oh, another yeah, list, and he—he's on the good side of the list. Yeah, he's—he's—he's he's, he's getting all of his Christmas gifts this year. You—you you tacitly kind of mentioned this right at the beginning, which is like, uh, in many ways, this is this is this is as you pointed out, a copy. We should get this out of the way, right? This is a copy of a copy of a copy. Um, do you want to talk about Resident Evil Hellraiser? <laughs> I mean, like this is this is so shocking, right? Because like I, I love I love the the saga that is Paul W S Anderson making movies for Mila Jovovich, 
like the just beautiful just beautiful but this this mila jovovich free movie i i think might be one of his best if not his best uh, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's up there my my hot take is i think this is his best film I, I think I'd agree with that. This this is a strong contender. What makes it really interesting is that, like, obviously this is a Hellraiser ripoff. Like, they are very intentionally making references and nods to Hellraiser. The, the, can, the you, design... can, you fa- can you share your favorite one, please? <laughs> oh, my God. Okay, okay. So there's there's a moment. So uh, th- throughout the course of the movie, Sam Neill gets, like, sucked into space hell. And he reemerges as as budget pinhead, you know, pinhead without the pins. Uh, needle face <laughs> yeah need, needle face needle face um um and you know like like you know pinhead's iconic line you know we have such sights to show you like oh my god so imposing and dark and and magnif- magnificent and then, and then we get this amazing scene of like sam neil sitting in a swivel chair once he becomes needle face and he says i have such wonderful things to show you <laughs> <laughs> Check out all of my cool stuff. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! And, and like, like Sam Neill is a wonderful horror actor. And just go on. Yeah, what are you saying? A little off topic, but can we talk about the genuinely iconic podcaster <laughs> chair that they have in this? Oh my! Oh my god! I was like, I saw that, and I was like, wow, that's like that's literally the chair I sit in. It's like connected to the ceiling, and I like swivel around in it, and where I where I command the podcasts it's 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 amazing it's amazing um but like what does it what does it mean to call something like a ripoff or to call like because in some ways this is much more than just the sum of its parts which is a bit of a cliche but like there's a lot in this film that i really like and i like it on its own terms and i completely agree with that like this is there is no question that this is heavily indebted to hellraiser but i i think it's doing interesting things that hellraiser doesn't cover it's taking the material of hellraiser and going in a different direction with it and that for me is what makes it escape the vortex of being like hellraiser bloodlines is a hellraiser ripoff event horizon is not a hellraiser ripoff it is it is because i think it's it's the kind of classic problem of like uh, the the drive for original for the original is a drive mm-hmm. for the impossible right yeah. because at least at least this freely admits its thematic and generic inspirations and it takes them in some really interesting directions i think uh as you pointed out it is uh not just a hellraiser ripoff but a bloodlines ripoff <laughs> Oh dear, yeah. So it, uh, I mean, like I can't, I can't say that with total certainty because it came out the year beforehand, and I don't know the production timetables of these films. Um, so maybe, maybe they were both, you know, maybe the script for Event Horizon was completed before uh, anyone was aware of the existence of Bloodline. But it, with that said, it is, it is kind of funny that Hellraiser beat them to the Hellraiser in space concept. <laughs> Honestly, we should bring that back. Horror sequels in space. I want my I want my paranormal activity in space. Yeah, it's just it's just a poltergeist on a spaceship. I'm there. I'm there. <laughs> it sounds yeah, amazing. One hundred percent. Take take like I don't know Mithrigan or Annabelle or like any of these cursed dolls onto the ISS. Oh, perfect. Literal perfect. I no notes. Hey, take take twenty five million dollars. Go make that movie. <laughs> <laughs> Mithrigan in space would just rule. <laughs> uh, uh, Blum, Blumhouse, call us, call us, Blumhouse. We, Jason Blum, we know that you listen to the show. We know, as <laughs> everyone in the horror world does, we know that you listen to the show. Yeah, give us, give us a little jingle. We've got an idea. We've got an idea that guarantees a return on investment. <laughs> also, Mister A twenty four, if that is your real name. Uh, please, please give us a call. <laughs> that does feel like a spy naming convention. Like a a a a twenty three died in the field, and now we have a twenty four. Now we have a now we have a twenty four. It's good, but yeah, this this really it's doing unique and interesting things, right? It's much less interested in the kind of like psychosexual tensions and perversions that Hellraiser is is heavily focused on, and it takes the religious thematics in kind of a, a different direction you know the, the hellraiser movies are very interested in being 
the, the kind of balancing act between the sacred and the profane. And this is much more the kind of like terrifying business end of the religious stick. I mean, if, if, so if we can generalize for a second, if Hellraiser is about the libidinal transgression of desire, mm-hmm. uh, Event Horizon is about, ultimately is about guilt. Yeah. Um, and is about kind of guilt that is kind of turned back inwards. Uh, to put it another way, guilt is a kind of unforgivable debt. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can, uh, this is why, this is why it's kind of like a haunting movie, but it's guilt is a self haunting, right? It's where there's a kind of split within, within the, within subjectivity where you become the thing that makes yourself feel terrible. Um, and so that's rather than it being like this kind of like weird uh, kind of pull towards self-annihilation as a kind of transcendence, it becomes this idea of like a self-annihilation as something that is inescapably deserved, which I yeah. think is the important thematic distinction between the two. I, I completely agree. This is a movie about penance. Like like Sam Neill's entire thing is this this horrifyingly terrific like act of flagellation. Yeah, absolutely. And it's an act of flagellation uh, due to the death of his wife. Um, mm-hmm. or, but, like, it's also it's also a film that looks amazing. <laughs> like, the production yeah. design on this film is so cool. It's, it's just it's just taking a page right out of Alien. Like, it's, it's that gritty, heavily mechanical, weighted sci-fi. It's that kind of like, I don't know, I don't want this to become a term, but it's like that blue collar sci-fi where, where it's it's before everything gets round and globular and glossy and communicative. And it's back when everything is a bunch of harsh, harsh blaring lights and half functioning doorways and clunky platforms. It's so much more present. Yeah, there's this it's it's like it's like what happened to science fiction imagination when we had the touch screen Mm -hmm. and what happened before we had that exactly and like you know 2001 a space odyssey is a vision of what happens when alexa goes wrong and it it did that decades before alexa was a thing you know like there's been this kind of like deeper commodification of the imaginative landscape of sci-fi cinema and that's caused everything to to start to look like an Apple computer. Because, and really, this is not a film that's interested in the technology. It's as you put it, it's very mechanical. But mm-hmm. like the big visual thematic is uh, eyes. Yes. In this, this is this uh, is dark ways of seeing. <laughs> what if what if ways of seeing, but like wrong. Um, <laughs> And there's 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 a lot of nucleation in this. Uh, uh, there's a lot of removal of eyes, uh, which is generally quite badly represented in films. Uh, anatomically, mm-hmm. it's quite complicated to do. The eye is basically like a, a sort of like a water balloon in your face that's pressurized with certain kinds of goo. Great. <laughs> so it's <laughs> it's difficult to show that in a way that is cinematic, right? It's difficult to, for the audience to see this. Um, but what do you think about like the the presentation of this connection between looking eyes and the destruction of sight? So I think this is really interesting, right? Because this this takes us back to the set design. There's a massive corridor connecting the kind of like crew quarters and controls of the Event Horizon ship with its experimental gravity Hellraiser lament configuration engine. Um. And that massive corridor is in the shape of an eye, right? It's got that oval, oval, like, ocular shape to it. And then all of the uh, portals, all of the airlocks, well, they, they just look like, what, like, five or six-bladed apertures from a, from a camera lens? You know, the, the, this kind of, like, view of, of observation and looking and watching and so much of the initial action is our crew trying to watch the the kind of downfall of the previous crew on their uh on, on the last functioning dvd player <laughs> and i think this is and again like guilt guilt is so much about internal observation 
you know, we, we observe a failure of our own penance and then the guilt just kind of reverberates through us. And, and these, this movie is so focused on how these people are watching each other, what technologies and social technologies they're using to do that observation, and then how that's guiding all of their actions. Uh, yeah, exactly. And I think the connection between sight and the camera is really important, right? And it, it does tie back to this theme of technology where, like, so much of what happens in this film is dependent upon very practical technology Mm -hmm. you know all of these sparking corridors and circuitry and things like that but also the promise of a kind of utopian technology a prometheanism right this idea that you can literally remake space and time in your own image yes yes oh my god that's like and i think this takes us into you know we're we're talking a lot about ways of seeing and, and and constructing the image and almost this like certain sense of vanity in the construction of this and how that applies to guilt. And we're, we're dealing with a film that it in and of itself was incomplete, was, was cut down by the studio. And, and for years now there have been rumors of a somewhat functional VHS working copy of, of the full edit of this movie that no one behind the film seems too eager to release. So originally the film was uh, about two hours long, uh, mm-hmm. and it was was apparently so violent uh, and so full of gore that the uh, production company insisted that the director cut cut it down. Paul W. S. Anderson has said he probably thinks it's te- he took probably he says ten minutes too much out of this, mm-hmm. uh, and I don't know. I quite like that it's a tight ninety minutes. Oh yeah. Um, what do you think about this? What do you think about this lost VHS? So I think I think there's a lot. There's so many angles that we can kind of approach approach this from. Y- you know, like because the existence of this VHS is disputed. You know, like but also um, there there has there has been commentary that the the quality of the VHS isn't exactly releasable, which which means that that could have been a rough cut or a working copy that just like wasn't ready for screening. Um, and that wouldn't be, it would be interesting to watch, but it wouldn't be like Event Horizon director's cut quality. And I think, I, I try to, I almost think that this is like a happy accident, because usually when I hear a studio forced the artist to cut the movie down for whatever reason, it's kind of a death knell for the movie or the explanation of why it's not working for me. But in this case, like, you're right. Like, it's a tight 90. It works really well. I really don't know what this movie could have gotten out of, like, 30 more minutes of gore. Yeah, I mean, because the violence in here is relatively minimal um, mm-hmm. and is and is so much more kind of shocking and impactful for it. Like, the rapid cut montage right mm-hmm. at the end, I think is amazing. You know, when they finally see what happened to the crew, or they finally... They finally you know, use the correct filter on the mythical <laughs> DVD player. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's a, it's a really genuinely kind of, like, shocking moment in the film that works so well because it's so brief and immediate. So, imaginatively, you're drawn into the kind of, into the scene in a way that you wouldn't be if Anderson had a bit more space. Exactly. Like, like uh, the gore just hits so much harder because you're not inundated with it. It's it's used very with a lot of precision in the cut that we're getting. And this isn't Hellraiser is the kind of movie where you can wallow in your gore. You know, you you can let the one of the points of the Hellraiser franchise is that the gore will overflow. It will it will rise up just like the Cenobites, right? The, the Cenobites don't torture for a love of evil and pain. They torture because they have perfected pleasure to such an extent where there is no longer a meaningful distinction between pain and pleasure. They have, it's jouissance, they have overflowed this boundary. And so when you're watching a Hellraiser movie, at first you're disgusted by the gore, and then like you're kind of numb to it, and and then you open up to a whole new exploration of it. And this is, this is just a completely different like psychological phenomenon we're working with. Guilt is so much more gnawing and indiscreet and hard to pin down. Um, but we should we should talk about maybe one of the reasons why this film works so well, which is um, uh, the, the man, the myth, the, the, the legend, 
the the man who is sitting in the cinema of existence just laughing maniacally to himself <laughs> sam sam neil fucking kills it in this movie he's again like possession like this mouth of madness like sam neil is an underrated horror star yeah, mouth, mouth madness, uh, possession, and this. What a run! What, what like un, un, underappreciated great horror actor, and just sells it. Just sells it so well. Right, like, I, th- I think Sam, Sam Neill as an actor is really good of, at being inserted into these like expansive, terrifying situations that that permanently change who he is on a psychological level. And I also understand why you would want to do a Jurassic Park movie after a couple of those. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. <laughs> so what's the script you got for me? Oh, big, big dinosaurs. I have to run from a dino. All right. Taken. But yeah, yeah. I mean, like just a, just a good, good, solid actor. Well, let's let us blow the hatches uh, off the formalism zone and sprint down the long corridor towards the weird <laughs> eye-shaped discursive zone that we're headed to next. And and do you want to kick that off by by talking about haunted houses? Yeah, I mean we're doing this. We're doing a kind of classic of of deep space exploration, right? The the spaceship is a like this is like Alien. Alien is a haunted house film. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. In so many ways, like every single sci-fi anything about your your ship going wrong, like so many of those are. It's literally just the haunted house transposed into the sci-fi realm. Uh, and I've I've got nothing against it, right? And it's like it's like, uh, you know, it's the it's the it's the lost object or the lost uh, state that returns wrong somehow right it's in in folk in folk horror it's usually um you know the person goes missing and yeah. they return kind of fundamentally changed um you know you you come back to your childhood home and suddenly the home feels weird and this is this is it this is it's it taps into very it's it's kind of like on a plot level it's very basic and you will probably be able to predict the beats that it goes through but it does them so well Mm-hmm. And it kind of com- commits to all of the slightly strained architecture of its own story with such kind of like conviction. I, I think you can't help but kind of buy it, right? Oh, yeah. And th- this has like that classic gothic haunted house formula of like uh, you know, one of the classic haunted house stories is is your long estranged great grandfather sends you a letter saying that you must spend a night in the haunted house to inherit his riches. Um, but it winds up being a Faustian bargain. You wind up, you wind up thinking you're getting one thing, but you get something so much more dangerous. And that's, that's the case in this, you know, like they receive the, the letter from the long lost relative. They get the transmission from the event horizon that was thought lost. And all they need to do is survive, uh, uh, about a day in the event horizon. And then they can claim their riches. They can reclaim this, this wonder of science and research and military power. In a way, it's also like uh, Shirley Jackson's The Hordes Get Hill House. Oh, totally. Mm-hmm. Because it's about someone who ends up kind of falling into the house, right, rather than resisting it. Oh, yeah, yeah. It does have that, uh, the, the the protagonist slowly realizing that the, the house is where they belong, that they're a part of this haunting rather than a victim of it. Uh, well, I think to... To kind of properly contextualize this, you, you you pointed this out. This the link to the military, but should we talk about space imperialism? Yeah, yeah. Let's uh, let's talk about the space force to defend us from the the those those deadly arachnids who did the first meteor strike on on Brazil, <laughs> and they get they uh, have what's coming. Do your part. They they you know I'm doing my part. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, what do you like? So, you you call this like blue blue collar space a blue collar sci fi movie, mm-hmm. um, and it's like this kind of technology, which is like it seems very physical and very uh, kind of draining, and everything is kind of gr- grimy and hard and difficult. So it's like it makes sense that the only way you can do this is by having a infrastructure that forces people into it right this is not the uh 
hyper-productive luxury communism future, right? This is this is space imperialism. This is this is the the only way that you can survive in space is through the force of the military and enforced interpersonal military discipline. Oh, totally. And this is this is, I think, one of the interesting continuing tropes of of spaceborne sci-fi. Even even with Star Trek, like Star Trek posits a world in which the government of Earth has been subsumed by this military force. With that's that's led by like a council of generals, and and somehow it's it's very it's suspiciously been been it's suspiciously beneficial for all of the residents of Earth besides the New Zealand penal colony, which is this, sorry this is we're not doing Maki Raider Radio right now we're doing a different show. <laughs> Um, but like, no, I think this is really interesting that like, as, as we head out into space, the, the kind of consistent way of imagining that is as an extension of the military. What I really want is I, 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 I kind of wish that we get, you know, Russian cosmist sci-fi. Oh, that would be great. Yep. There is one tiny detail about this future that kind of does give me hope, which suggests, uh, there's a tiny detail in this film that suggests the British Commonwealth has completely collapsed. Oh, yeah. What was that? So, uh, you, you may notice in the course of the film that all of the various members of the crew have uh, nationality flag patches on their arm mm-hmm. uh, to show where they're from. Yep, so, naturally. the Americans have the Stars, stars, and, stars and Stripes. Uh, the uh, English characters all have the EU flag. <laughs> Ooh, okay, here and we my go. Fav- my, my favorite detail is that Sam Neill uh, has the Australian flag on his arm patch, mm-hmm. but without without the uh, the Union Jack in the top corner, which is how it, how it is, which has been replaced by um, the Aboriginal flag. I did not even this movie just this movie just shot up in my estimation <laughs> so so thoroughly. Someone, now, someone did this on purpose. Out, as far as I can find out, the person who did that, who asked for that, was Sam Neill. As far as I'm aware, as far as I'm aware, that's Sam something Neill that Sam Neill requested. <laughs> uh, because in the future, the argument was the Commonwealth would no longer be, would no longer be. The sun finally sets on the British Empire, and all that's required is for us to access the hell dimension. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe, maybe maybe that act is like a maybe 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 this movie had it a little wrong, and, and the hell dimension wasn't erupting into Earth. We just kind of like released it back into the hell dimension. But yeah, I thought that was a cool detail, and it's fun that you that that, that I've, I found something in the film that has kind of changed how you think about it. This this movie this movie is now a flawless ten. It's it's now a Criterion. Where are you on this? <laughs> um, I do have a question. Yes, I have a question. Uh, and everybody who has seen this film is expecting me to ask this question to you specifically. <laughs> oh, here Ash, we go. Ash, will you talk to us about goo? <laughs> goo. Uh, yeah, yeah. Let's 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 talk about let's talk about goo. Um, this is this is interestingly a movie with that has a judicious application of goo for a Hellraiser film. I, and that, like the, the goo in this one, is is the weird kind of like fluidic substance that is their magic gravity drive. Which, for for the record, I I want to like I want a prequel of this movie, but it's just like a very slow burn mockumentary about them designing this engine, because I want to know who said <laughs> cover it in fucking spikes, spikes that could impale a man, spikes that are five feet tall. I, I want I want to know who 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 made that choice because brilliant ten out of ten um, I like a good imposing cosmic engine, but what what I really really enjoy is the kind of like people getting like submerged into this cosmic goo, right? Like we're being pulled back into this thing that we were originally jettisoned from over the course of time, and like there, there's these like wonderful like and then um. Lawrence Fishburne's character, Captain Miller, like his discussion of like the the fluidity of fire, right? This thing that we perceive as being decidedly not wet. Uh, but when you when you change the terms a little bit, when you switch out gravity and when you move things around, it becomes this like very fluidic, very gooey substance. I think in that respect, like this this movie becomes 
interestingly challenging for like perceptions of like again like acoustic phenomena and how and like where we sit in terms of our own stability uh yeah absolutely and you know people are constantly getting into tanks full of space slime Mm. Uh, they're getting covered in blood there's the the weird globs of like a coolant that are floating around yeah there's the hell goo that takes you (laughs) through to the to satan's playground Uh, it's full of goo this is but again this is kind of cutting against this idea of space as a kind of like as a place of sterility or something like cold and empty yeah and there is Really, this is a cosmic horror film, right? It's not just a haunted oh, house because it's not about. There isn't a monster per se, right? It's about coming into contact that kind of sh- is. It's about an epistemological haunting, right? The, the the universe, the sky of the universe opens up, and you are cast into something so fast that consciousness itself can only kind of melt away. I love it. I love it so much, and and like this is deeply Lovecraftian, and then again, like, but with that said, like, like almost the existence of Western sci-fi as we know it is indebted to the work of H.P. Lovecraft, so it's hard to kind of like cleave cleave H.P.L. from sci-fi, for better or for worse. Shrug. It just wound up being that way. Yeah. Um. Thank you, what prolific you author, editor, and and writer mentor Howard Phillips Lovecraft for being weird as all hell. Uh, do you want to talk about STEM? No, but we have to. <laughs> <laughs> hey shot taken. I'm kidding. I love science, but not in the way that that meme, that phrase might suggest some kind of mimetic relationships. Uh, no, we should talk about, we should talk about STEM. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the first thing that I think that we, we should start talking about is kind of, God, there's so much to discuss. In in regards to the quote unquote hard sciences in this movie, uh, so so uh, Doctor Weir, Sam Neill's character, is the inventor of the uh, gravity engine that can uh, fold space and time and cause faster than light travel. But you know, it also takes you to a hell dimension that drives everyone mad and and causes them to kill themselves and and rip out their own eyes in a way that, as you have uh, said, is surprisingly not medically accurate. <laughs> <laughs> And here, and here, I thought my entire time that I could just pop one out like a grape, and it would retain its form, and you could kind of just flick it about. I wouldn't try that. <laughs> well, in a proper STEM if, if fashion, we need to empirically test this one. And I think that, that I mean, like, like all jokes aside, like this this movie, I think, is a really excellent discussion of like why STEM must always inherently and necessarily fail when you try to detach it from philosophy. Yes, absolutely. Uh, go off. <laughs> okay, well, so so first, for first, right? Like, like is this is a classic philosophical problem? You cannot derive an ought from an is. If if all this current construction of science is capable of doing is is deriving ises, you know, like like discovering a new stronger way to make a bridge or or a faster train. It can't tell you where to put that, why to put it there, how to use it effectively. Like that just cannot be drawn forth from that information that requires philosophy, philosophy, ethics, like it is necessary. It is inherent and it is vital. Otherwise, we we know all too well the consequences of what happens when you you get a bunch of scientists starting to think that they're beyond philosophy and ethics, that their actions don't require any kind of like mediation from the humanities. And well, like there's this there's this really revealing moment in the film where uh, Dr. Weir is in this kind of interstitial phase of of being like, yes, uh, let us let us power up the hell torment engine <laughs> uh, and and also kind of like trying to dismiss everything that's happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Lawrence Fishman's character, the captain goes like, can you give me some answers? You know, you're the expert. You're the one mm-hmm. who's supposed to have answers. And all he can say is, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what's going on. And it's not that he doesn't know what's going on. It's that he isn't willing to admit the possibilities of different kinds of knowledge. There's this kind of like really, his sort of self-defense mechanism is a really kind of crude uh, empiricism. 
Yeah. Um, that is is almost exactly what leads to him, uh, you know, cheerfully uh, cranking the handle on the uh, drive everybody mad machine. <laughs> Yes, and like the thing is, this this is so true, and like it's also deeply ideological on his part, right? Like this is a consequence of again, you know, like science, engineering, education that's been just totally ripped out of philosophy, right? All of this stuff emerges as philosophic endeavor, right? This is all natural philosophy before the machinations of capital realize that they need to start ripping it out of the humanities like it doesn't it doesn't produce critical discourses it just answers it just solves puzzles right one of those is a a threat to capital and the other isn't i'm sort of like uh watching this uh you know the jeff bezos's of the world will go that engine sounds like it would be a great idea we should just build it and see what happens right exactly exactly we've watching this movie and, and going like oh you know well like we could probably safely utilize the send you straight to hell button. You know, like that, that, that's what you get. <laughs> and, and again, like, like, so, so, uh, Dr. Weir, like, even before they, they arrive at the ship that literally just went to hell, he's having these nightmare visions. He's the first one to start experiencing this stuff. And then when he's on the ship, He's he's the first one to start experiencing the the haunting call of of his dead wife and seeing her and like and then everyone else starts to experience their own versions of this phenomena and and he and he's like oh nope you're all going mad you, you know you're all delirious maybe there's a gas leak or the gravity waves are distorting your perception and like but he's he's patient zero and he can't come to terms with the fact that like the the that his like utilization of the quote-unquote hard sciences is is not only frail but also completely out of its depth in what he's trying to deal with yeah absolutely and so the 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 entire but really there's this he goes through this really interesting arc of of He's very keen to tell everybody that what they've seen isn't really what they've seen, but he mm-hmm. seems to take what he sees entirely seriously. Yeah. Which is a really interesting kind of like... He's never trying to explain away his own auditory and visual hallucinations, right? He is a believer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's and, and this kind of like totally reinforces what you were just saying. Oh, oh completely. And, and like the, the... I think the argument that we're kind of like building here is not a kind of like oh like you know like destroy the stem lords humanities forever it's that no these things need to be rejoined these things that were fused and forged and built together need to be brought back together like like they're they're two parts of a of a complete way of understanding like they can't be like meaningfully detached like this is, this is the whole, ah, it's the whole point of materialism ah <laughs> yeah <laughs> sorry i just accidentally that. pushed this button that sent me to hell <laughs> um oh. but yeah this is this is this is uh, this is in so many ways a film about uh, exactly that that kind of like crude straightforward empiricism uh instrumentalized to the point of obsession as a means of splating a kind of metaphysical guilt that cannot be dealt with solely in rationalist terms. Mm-hmm. I I completely completely agree with that. I think that's a great way of approaching this too. Like you need to approach this from both both angles and and both both sides of things, right? It's telling that like the the only add on. So uh, Doctor not Doctor Miller, Captain Miller, and his crew are are medical officers, technicians. They're they're on a salvage operation, right? They're they're there to bring back the event horizon and to rescue any crew that could be injured and on board. Uh, Doctor Weir is the only add-on to this program, and he's the guy who built the engine, right? He's not he's not qualified for a space mission. He has no other training, no other useful skills. He just built this thing, or probably by built it. I I think you know. He, 
Your comments about Jeff Bezos, I think, are apt. He's probably closer to the Elon Musk than he is to, like, the actual people who built that engine. Yeah. Um, and it's it's really telling that, like, every, everyone else that... Other people that could be useful on this type of expedition are, are completely absent from it. It's... it's he's, he's the one who gets put on the ship to go bring it back, and it's... It, it's deeply revealing. Uh... Any, any, as we start to kind of wrap things up, any, any final thoughts? Yeah, yeah. I think the last thing that I think would be fun to touch on would be like class and language. Yes. We get, we get this whole recurring several times throughout the movie. It's almost this theme. It's a sub theme of the film, actually. Um, I'd go, I'd go as far as to phrase it like that, but like, so, so Dr. Weir keeps, keeps explaining how the science works to our crew of people who can repair damaged spaceships on the fly. Um, but he's, he's, and so like people who like 100% can absolutely understand how this is working. He's in a room of medical doctors and, and literal spaceship technicians. And, but he's explaining it in, in the most condescending, like he's so condescending to, to all of the other people there on, on this mission. And like, He's he's like, oh, why is everyone being so so curt with me? I don't get it. And he's he's just being a knob the entire time. And I think we get this interesting exploration that keeps popping up of of the use of language and class division. Yeah, it's the, this idea of the expert as being the kind of like, oh, my goodness, it's the difference between the traditional and uh, the organic and uh, bourgeois intellectual. Yep. Right, mm-hmm. it's like yep, literally. there you go, like literally, literally right in front of you. That's what this film is doing. I feel like I've just unlocked something, <laughs> like, like uh, without without uh, without any one of those those soldiers, technicians, experts, the mission would not work. Mm-hmm. Without Weir, the mission would have been a, would have been a success. Oh right? yeah, it would, it would have been a wild success. <laughs> Uh, they they are not engaged in the same kind of intellectual or practical labor, right? That's that's a really important distinction to make. Uh, and he's he very quickly, uh, we're very quickly slips into the role of kind of ordering these people around. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 it, and again, like it, it's it's never directly stated throughout the course of the movie, but like if we just look to the world around us, like. There, there is a distinction of class position. The, you know, like Miller and his crew are the people who get sent into the burning experimental wreckage to try and save stuff, and and Weir is the guy with the the like C-suite job who is like trying to doodle a totally unusable submersible to save children trapped in a cave. Uh, there, you know, there's no real world analogies here. I, I don't think. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> And yeah, yeah, it's just oh god, this fucking movie. This fucking movie is so good. <laughs> yeah, what do you any 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 last bits and pieces that you want to you want to pick up on? You know, uh, mm, there's just this this is one of those movies where like th- there's just a list of films where I'm like we could absolutely come back for a second discussion because th- this this movie is just it's so layered and there's so much depth to it. Like we we did not get deep enough into all of the members of Captain Miller's crew. Oh yeah, can and, we can we can we talk about uh, can we talk about uh, Coop? Uh, because yeah. I think Cooper Cooper gets uh, Cooper gets in some ways the uh, the 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 worst kind of treatment for a black actor in a nineties horror movie. Oh my god, yeah. Which is where he gets something horrible happens to him, which the response like he gets thrown out into space mm-hmm. and his response is to like crack some jokes. Yeah. Uh, because that's 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 the role that he's given. Comes he manages to, to, to save himself and then is immediately killed off again. So he he's he sort of he sort of dies twice. Uh, mm-hmm. and he's and he is the one who basically saves the Lewis and Clarks, saves the ship. Um, 
And God, it's such a telling detail. It's named after Lewis and Clark, right? If you want to, mm-hmm. you want yet more evidence to underscore my point about American space imperialism or space colonialism. You know, they they start the space program because they want to do uh, mining on the moon, and it's like, yeah, it's the it's it, the extractive dreams of capital is is what the the ideology of this film is based on. It's a very it it makes so much sense that it's a mid nineties movie. But, like, Cooper then just gets kind of thrown off into space and is kind of completely forgotten about. Just sort of vanishes from the film. Um, What do you think about that? If there's anything in this movie that needs to get cut, it's it's what happens to Cooper. Because that is, like... Like, I was watching it, and it just... It's it's a tonally different movie when, when... Cooper's out in space and he's like doing some jokes about making like like a, a dangerous like he's gonna like vent oxygen from his tank to try and like propel him back to the ship and like that is is an incredibly tense incredibly difficult like like that's been done in sci-fi movies and you can do that very tense and very horrific and very measured but they're like making making him goofy and it's 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 the most like tropic reduction of a character in in the entire film, and it's so jarring because like none of the rest of the movie is really engaged in that. Yeah, like we can we can talk about like you know like there, there's some kind of like <laughs> sexist issues popping up through the film of the kind of like you know like women astronauts who are either wives or mothers. And that's kind of their like primary distinction from from the their male counterparts. But even even that like nothing is as jarring as how this film treats Cooper's death or deaths, as you put it. Um. Yeah, I think the final point should we talk about should we talk about the religion and theology in this? Yeah, I mean, I think we have to, right? So, so what is what are some of your space theology thoughts here? Well, do you know what the the set is based on? Oh no, hit me! Uh, Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. Ah, I can see it. Yeah, they literally they literally uh, uh, scanned Notre Dame, put it in, in, into a computer model, and built that. Um, yeah, I bet you. I bet you most of our listeners don't know that there is actually a gravity engine that takes you straight to hell in the Notre Dame Cathedral. <laughs> uh, you know they and, and of course like they did the gyroscope they built the rotating tunnel um and that's why that's why the design looks so good right <laughs> oh I, I just i just love i love that meme that's been popping around lately that's like it's a picture of notre dame and it's like how did people build this before machines there's got to be some kind of conspiracy and and the comment is like it took over 600 years <laughs> <laughs> the answer is very slowly so 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 uh so what do you make of that then? Like I really like the because I like unintentionally invoked cathedral imagery in the Precy too. So like it really stands <laughs> out. And of course it's um it's a film about hell, right? Mm-hmm. Um and yeah, how do we how do we square this this kind of like historicism, this antiquated what, like what feel like very old ideas with something that's said in the future? What what do you think about that? Oh my god, so you know how you just had a moment where it felt like everything lined up? I get yeah. it now. This is Doom. Oh, there's another thing I know about this. There's there's a sound cue that's used in this, which is literally taken from Doom. Oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. It's all coming. L- l- listeners, we have found the truth, we have found the truth. Uh, s- download this, share it with everyone, we're onto something, we know what you're up to, W.S. Anderson. W.S. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, oh dear! Wow. Okay, I did not because like Doom, Doom is doing the same thing theologically, and 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 its discourse with STEM, right? Like Doom is about a bunch of scientists trying to mine hell with with no philosophic frameworks, with no engagement of the consequences of their actions, and they keep covering planets and demons in the course of trying to do that. Yeah, absolutely. It's like uh, you dig through this reality, you end up in hell. I think I think that model of hell is super interesting um, because there's a lot that they cut, right? But we do get to see some glimpses of mm-hmm. hell. There's a lot of uh, uh, cannibalism. There's a lot of like blood drinking. There's a lot of what looks like a lot of hell orgies. Um, 
and I don't know if this I don't know if I'm just reading too much into this, but my my feeling is that it's drawing off the work of Hieronymus Bosch. Do you do you want me to blow your mind? Because they did draw off the work of Hieronymus Bosch. Hold it. <laughs> we keep we keep running into truths today. <laughs> uh particularly I'm thinking like the, the rapid cut mon- montage where, mm-hmm. you know, Sam Neil asks, Do you see? Uh and when they find out what happened to the crew of the the original crew of the Event Horizon. And I'm like, this must have been really complicated to film. Uh, <laughs> and it doesn't surprise me that this was... So, like, this, they did... I don't think Paramount understood what they had uh, mm-hmm. because this was designed to basically fill a gap in the in the release schedule after Titanic went over its deadline. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like it's marketed it's original trailers are all about like it's a space movie it's like no no nope. <laughs> <laughs> oh but just, all just of this enough. kind of ties up back to this the the overall theme of of guilt and mm-hmm. honestly i think i think that the 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 moment you mentioned where the captain confesses like it's a kind of really tender moment almost where he confesses the worst thing he's ever done mm-hmm. and He's ne- and he explicitly says that he's never told anybody that before, um, and it's like th- this is that's maybe that's maybe the reason that he's the one who can defeat the 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 hell spaceship. Yes, is because is because he finds a kind of absolution, and I think that that theologically is something very hopeful in this film. You know, because if what I think a lot of the kind of doom event horizon stuff toys with is that you know like if there is an empirical hell then like the the corollary the corollary of that likely exists as well right and like i think you're completely correct that like miller you know like this film is very catholic he literally confesses his sins and then finds his salvation shortly after that and i think that that also weaves in these ideas of like russian cosmism Right. Like, you know, the idea of like finding salvation for the dead, like building a world that is so good that even the people who died in nameless deaths can can also benefit. And that that just like naturally leads us back to ideas of liberation theology. I mean, because Sam Neill, Sam Neill doesn't doesn't go to hell at the end. Right. Sam Neill yeah. is in hell from the very beginning of the film. Mm hmm. Because really, that's what guilt is. It's a self. Imp- it's it's constructing the most perfect torture for yourself and willingly closing the door and locking it behind mm-hmm. you. That's what that's what guilt is. Um, because it's a hell that's literally inescapable. It it means that he's kind of he's always fated to end up this way, mostly because he has no way of attaining the kind of cathexis, no way of actually. Uh, doing anything other than kind of like spiraling further into self-punishment oh absolutely yeah that's that's completely true any any closing closing thoughts closing statements concerns needs space-born worries it's just great it's just it's just it's just a really soul it's a it's just again more horror films that are a tight 90 a cool production (laughs) design and have Sam Neill in. What more can we ask for? There's really, there's really nothing else. There's really nothing else that we need. I, I think the only other comment I'd make is that, like, we, we get a couple lines throughout this about how the ship is alive now, after after coming back from literal hell. And I think that 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 again is like so so philosophically useful. What we do with a living tool, you know, like like what, how do we respect the, the 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 like triple O agency of the objects that we also work with? How do they? <laughs> I mean, like beyond like beyond kind of like trite observations, right? Like if you have a hammer, every problem is a nail. But like, what does it mean to use these tools, right? Like, you know, you don't use a tool. You enter into a relationship with one. And, and you know, like, this, you know, a, a spaceship that went to hell and drives everyone on it uh, uh, mad with guilt, I, I think is a great exploration of that. <laughs> Uh, I mean, this is just this is just proving that we really do need to invest in a good public transport infrastructure. Oh my god! Yeah, <laughs> you know, can we make it more efficient? Can we can we drill tunnels on the cities? Can we can we construct the the send you to the hell dimension bus? No, we don't need to do that. There is a better way. <laughs> <laughs> oh, do not show this movie to Elon Musk. He will start to get ideas. 
Oh my god. Oh my god. Well, this has been a wonderful bonus episode, everyone. Uh, thank you for joining us in this discussion of, uh, I guess, completing, truly now completing our Resident Evil review series. <laughs> no, we, we still have to talk about Mortal Kombat one day. <laughs> oh my... You know what? Honestly, that counts. That's a horror movie. It's got some monsters in it. I th- I, it's, it's got gore. I think we're fine. <laughs> says, yeah, oh my done. god, says, go. says the guy who suggested Ten Commandments for April, yeah. <laughs> it's got Vincent Price in it. It's got Vincent Price. It's got a ghost. Uh, spirits or ghosts, holy or not. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah, that's fine. It's fine. Sure, we can't film A Plague of Frogs, because that would cost too much money, but like, whatever. Oh, with that little, <laughs> that little teaser, everyone, with that glimpse into the into the hell drive of your future... I, I I bid you adieu. I have to go uh, blow up the corridor leading back to the podcaster cube that's been generating all of these little radio programs that show up on your phone. We have such wonderful things for, for you to listen to. <laughs> hey, Pops, want to see something real neat? And then I proceed to, like, shoot chains out of my eyes. <laughs> all right. Oh, Got goodbye, it. everyone. Got it. There we go. Good there night, go. sweet dreams. We hope you've enjoyed the Dread Discourse. Until next week, stay spooky.